the reading of God's Word. It comes to us from Mark chapter 6. We're spending time in this gospel throughout this month, and uh, we're going to look at this familiar story that we've uh, already heard uh, hints at the, today. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. A longer reading this morning, so bear with me, but I think you'll find this familiar. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? He asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish total of 5,000 men and their families were fed from those loaves. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have to tell you this morning, if you have not been encouraged in song this morning by our children and by our choir, whoo! We must be asleep. Thank you so much for sharing with us that way and in in this incredible way to experience God's presence, both of our choirs. We're taking um, this month to talk about one of the grandest ideas that's ever been presented. It's not my idea, and it certainly has been shared before. It is an idea, though, that I think we need to revisit pretty regularly. It's an idea that the church is actually tasked with, and yet we forget Um, The idea is this, what Jesus did, he expected to continue through the people who chose to follow him. Let me repeat that for us, just so that we're clear. What Jesus did, he expected to continue through the people who chose to follow him. The idea is that a bunch of people would become a part of this movement of disciples that go into the world and show the world what the kingdom of God really does look like. You know, the ancient Romans loved to find clever ways to antagonize anybody who wasn't like them. They considered themselves a tolerant people who demanded that others come along to their way of thinking. Their tolerance extended to everyone uh, who Rome conquered, 
And when a group would not accept that tolerance, this tolerance of a new liberating captor, the group was looked down on as barbaric and backwards. The Jews were a favorite topic uh, uh, and target of Rome. They had one God, they refused to work seven days a week, and they had weird food restrictions. The Christians who came out of the Jewish faith were equally strange. They, had, they also had strange meals. They embraced everybody, regardless of race or class or background. And it was too much for the elitism of Rome and, and, and even many of the cities throughout the empire. The church then was regularly ridiculed, persecuted, for this strange new belief in a resurrected God-man who came to usher this new reign of humility and peace and holiness, whatever that meant. So being good and clever Romans, they came up with nicknames to criticize and mock the early members of the church, these followers of the way of Jesus. In mock tones, they were called Christians or little Christs who acted just like this ridiculous savior of them. And the Christians heard this and they went, yeah, I like that. They embraced the ridicule and the mockery. They embraced the social stigma of this new status. They embraced this title that was meant for them to be a, a, a well, a deri- deri- derivative title. I'll spit it out eventually. It was supposed to be something to belittle them and said they went, no, that's good. To be like Christians was to be like Jesus. It was to be his disciple, a disciple of the one who changed and was changing the whole wide world. To be a Christian meant that when someone saw you, saw your actions, heard your words, they immediately thought of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? As a pastor, I get invited to attend particularly a good amount of wedding banquets, usually because I've been asked to preside over the wedding ceremony. Honestly, I don't go to very many of them. Now, it's not because I'm a grump and I don't like a good party. Uh, Quite the opposite, actually. I usually don't go because I find people act a whole lot different at parties when they know the pastor is there. (laughs) I guess part of that is good, but I also feel like my presence at at parties, at least, is is often a downer for folks. Like, I'm supposed to be the serious guy all the time who makes sure everyone's minding their P's and Q's. Some of you are giggling because you're going, not you, no way. (laughs) Do you know what I don't want to be? I don't want to be a religious policeman. It's not in me, and I'm really thankful for it. I don't want to be a person who sits on the sidelines and frowns at all the sinners around me. I don't want to be the person who's so bent on the rules that that I just got to make sure everybody's following so, so God won't be mad at you. I don't want to be part of that story. Anybody else with me? I don't don't want to be a part of a story that I think is a wrong picture of this God that we say that we worship and serve. But I've discovered that there's a lot of people that have this kind of internal story of who and what God is. That God is just this big grump in the sky who hates not just sin, but sinners too. And as a result of that hate of that sin and sinners, God has to punish both and has to unleash wrath and prophetical judgment on all of us in order for us to behave and to get in line. Let me say right here, right now, that's a broken story about God. It's not the God of our scriptures, not the Old Testament, not the New. But even as I say that, I know that this narrative persists in a lot of people. 
I read an article this week about a young woman who says she felt like the church has been gaslighting her. I had to look up what that meant. Gaslighting is defined as a psychological manipulation in which a person seeks to sow seeds of doubt in somebody else or in members of some group, making them question their own memory, perception, and sanity. She felt that her church's message to her was that she was bad and that there are this whole list of things that she needs to do in order to appease God, to get God off her back, like thinking one set way and policing those who think differently. You know, the truth is she's got a bad story. She's got a bad narrative, a bad story that a lot of good people share. Let me get right to the point. Jesus doesn't want to change your behavior. He wants to completely transform us and see us live a new and unprecedented life. And the transformation is stunningly easy and impossible at the same breath. Well, that sounds like preacher talk, doesn't it? Being a disciple, going from fan to follower, embracing Jesus as our teacher is as simple as becoming just like him. Not some super long list of do's or don'ts, of have-tos and think-like-me's. It is It is staying so close to him that we learn from his ways. It's becoming the very best version of you that you were intended to be from the start of all time. In fact, Jesus says to those of us with this bad story, are you tired? Are you burned out? Come and learn from me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, and I'll show you how to take a real rest. He doesn't say memorize some code of conduct. He says, come and be with me. Learn from me. Being a disciple, it's a big deal. Transformation by definition isn't easy, but it's also not complicated, at least not as complicated as I think as we've made it in the church. I want to share a few marks of a disciple that come right out of Jesus' life and ministry. These marks are they're good places to start as we evaluate how we're doing at being like our teacher, at being like Jesus. Today we're looking at how Jesus loved and how he served. The story that I read is in all four Gospels, which ought to tell us it's important. The 12 have returned from their first two-by-two mission trip. They've taken Jesus' story with them wherever they've gone. They were announcing that this kingdom of God had come. That his new way of life is breaking out all throughout creation. It's already an evangelion or a gospel or a good news that's being shared. And the acts of the disciples that they've been doing in Jesus' name have been so influential that there are hundreds and thousands in the crowd that are coming. They want to be near Jesus. And the disciples, they're making their report, and the crowds are pressing in. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey, guys, let's get in the boat. Let's get away for a while. You need a rest. Oh, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus come to you and say, you need a break? And I'm not talking about a Kit Kat. Jesus' investment in these followers is such that he knew when they were at the threshold. We're told that they're so busy that they couldn't even take a break to eat. Jesus knows that they've been, they've been pushed out. It's too far, and he says, enough. So they get in the boat, and they begin to cross to a more deserted place. 
I bet that's a gift that each and every one of us in this room would love to receive, isn't it? Tradition tells us that Jesus' deserted spot was in a place in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's a place that he regularly frequented. And the crowds apparently know this. They figure out where Jesus is going, so they start moving on to the deserted place. Tradition tells us that where they were, it's about a four-mile boat trip and a ten-mile walking journey. The disciples have, at minimum, four miles of quiet, a boat trip with Jesus. Hopefully a couple days of rest beyond that, but the crowds, they have other plans. They have needs and wants of their own, and they intend to intercept Jesus at this quiet spot. Mark tells us that they beat the boat there. They beat the boat. They went 10 miles while the disciples went four. Think about it. At best, they had 90 minutes of peace while the crowds were booking it across on land. I wonder if the disciples enjoyed those 90 minutes or they went, oh man, they're following us. Good grief. Lord, can we turn the boat around? The gospels say that Jesus looks out at the crowd and he has stomach pains for them. The word's translated as compassion in our scriptures, but it's better in the Greek, omaya. That just sounds like something's wrong with your stomach, doesn't it? <laughs> and it means to yearn with your bowels. Uh, it means to have pity or sympathy that you feel. Jesus loves this crowd. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. Anybody ever been around sheep? They're really dumb animals, you know that? (laughs) Sheep without a shepherd, they're in deep trouble. Sheep can't be on their own. They'll get lost. They can't find their own food and water. If they're exposed to dangers, it will take their lives because they're not smart. This group, Jesus looks over and he sees that they need direction, that they need care. They need care of a shepherd. So Jesus is moved with compassion. The same way he was moved with compassion to the disciples to say, let's get in a boat. They need a break, even if it's only for 90 minutes. And in both cases, his love for them is put into action. He he loves and he serves. He, He serves the disciples by inviting them into this rest. He serves the shepherd's sheep by teaching them and healing them. His compassion, that gut feeling is to share with them a better story that they'll be invited to live and then to share with everybody else. Jesus' compassion must have set the disciples on edge. I mean, think about it. They're struggling to cope with this drama that's unfolding around them. Their quiet time was interrupted I can imagine them thinking that they had already done so much for Jesus in this missionary trip, and now they just want the crowd to go away. So the disciples speak to Jesus saying, Preacher, teacher, the rabbi is late. The people need to go away. They need to get food for their worn out from the day. Isn't that rich? Jesus feels compassion for the crowd, so he teaches and preaches to them. And the disciples tell Jesus, wrap it up, preacher. I've heard that before, too. (laughs) And like Jesus, I ignore it. See, the disciples... (laughs) The disciples see that this need of this people, and probably their own need, 
is not really for teaching. It's not for a sermon. It's for these people getting home and getting fed. I just love what Jesus says. He says, I'm still preaching, so you feed them. Well, maybe not the preaching part. But he does invite the the disciples to do exactly what Jesus has been doing. He says, serve. Serve them, guys. The disciples, they're gobsmacked. It would have taken six months' wages for them to get food for this crowd, for even just a nibble. Basically, the disciples are done. They're done with the crowds, and they have this mindset, this mindset of limited resources. They even say, anything we got ain't worth anything to give. That's good English, right? Jesus asked them, well, what do you got? And the response is what we all know. It's from our little flannel graph stories. It's five loaves and two fishes. Now, I find it funny because I always had in my mind this picture of a full fish, a large fish that was pulled out of a basket. But this, this fish is probably more about the size of a sardine. It's a common appetizer of salted fish that you would put on a cracker at a party, which is about what the loaves would have been like, like five sticks of Melba toast or a Ritz cracker. So what they got really isn't worth much at all. And Jesus then takes this meager snack and he begins to give instructions. Oh man, y'all wait for this because these instructions are great. Jesus tells the crowd, this 5,000 men plus women and children, to gather themselves in party groups of 50 to 100. You heard that right, party groups. That's the actual idea. It's not Sunday school classes or circles, but a party group. Oh, I thought that was really cool. Jesus invites them to skid in this group and then and to sit in the grass and to get ready. I, I've been invited to parties before, things that I was really excited about, and the anticipation just builds and builds and builds. Can you imagine the anticipation on that hillside? I, we're going to get ready to have a party. He's going to do something. He's got sardines and Ritz crackers. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) What does Jesus do? He prays this common blessing over their food, and everybody eats. Everybody eats. Not only do they eat, but they collect 12 baskets of leftovers. Every good and observant Jew carried a basket similar to this right here. They carried a basket like this with kosher food in case they were ever trapped somewhere and they had to eat. Those those restrictions were important. So what do we learn? They had exhausted their supply. There's nothing left in the basket. Nothing but these little fish, these little crackers. And what do they do at the end? They fill 12 of those baskets with leftovers. That's not a lack of mentality. That's a look what I can do for you mentality. The story is so amazing. And again, because it appears in all four Gospels, we got to pay attention. A lot of folks dismiss the supernatural because, well, it's it's easy. We don't see that very often. When was the last time your Charlie Tuna and Ritz crackers served 5,000 people at a strong dinner party? Probably not. But that it's in all four Gospels lends to the credibility of it happening. Jesus did something that was so beyond their imagination, so beyond their expectation that people couldn't but tell others about it. And what do we learn from this rabbi, from these disciples? 
But we learn that Jesus is mentoring his disciples in two very specific ways. He's teaching them to love, to have that gut sympathy and compassion, and then to serve with, for and with one another. Jesus offers both to these both groups, to his disciples and the crowd. He rejoices in the victory and the joys of the disciples. He says to them, y'all, we need to take a rest. Y'all need caring for. His compassion for them invites them to take a break. But he also shows a very different kind of compassion to these crowds. He actually has this gut sympathy for this group of sheep. And I bet he actually, I think he actually traced their journey just like the disciples, but in a completely different mindset. He's watching them and he's choosing to be with them and to teach them and to heal them and to provide for them. He serves them. He serves the disciples by giving, uh, get, giving them away, getting them away from the crowds. It may have only been for 90 minutes, and they're back at it. But he gave them quality time to breathe and to rest. He serves the crowds by ministering to their needs spiritually and physically. He teaches them, and then he sends them physically well and fed. My grandmother was a kindergarten teacher, and she'd regularly say, Jimmy, I need you to put on your your imagination cap. Can't help but think of the story and put on my imagination cap and think of the conversation of these disciples. Can you imagine how they must have checked in with themselves after such a whirlwind of events? In many ways, they'd, they'd done so well. They had received so much from Jesus, but at the same time and in the same breath, they're being invited to something more to something greater, to something deeper, a challenge to step up to. The disciples had a problem. They had a problem that many of us have today. They had a problem of a a lack of mentality. Mentality that says there's just not enough to go around. After they got out of the boat, they're probably grumping about only having those 90 minutes. They didn't want to get back into the fray. When the day had gone too long, they want to see the crowds go on. They needed this reminder from Jesus that these folks needed him. They were convinced, even after being on their own mission trips and seeing so much of Jesus' life on display, that there wasn't enough to go around. One translation said it would take 200 penny worth to feed the crowds. Six months of wages wouldn't be enough. Not even enough for a snack. So what does Jesus do? He takes a snack and shows that love and service in Jesus' name goes a long way. This passage invites us to an attitude check for us as disciples today. As his disciples, as a people following our teacher, because he's called and empowered us to be like him, are we more like the disciples who sit back and go, I don't know? Are we like our teacher who wants to offer compassion and service do we want to measure in terms of lack like the disciples or do we want to measure in terms of like the teacher who couldn't send away sheep to collapse or to be somebody else's problem but to have a gut sympathy, a compassion with them, choosing to engage right where they are. And I found that in the rhythms of our lives there are two dangers that quickly rise up that these disciples were probably very much in danger of. It's the rhythm of coming and going. The disciples needed time with their teacher. They needed rest. So do you and I. 
We need to stop to take time in the boat with the teacher, even if it's just for 90 minutes, and 90 minutes will change everything. We need to be still and know who it is that shepherds us. But we also need to get out of the boat sometimes. We need to see the needs that are around us, the needs that are often much bigger than our own. The the danger of constant going is equally real as the danger of constant withdrawing. There's a dance of both that we desperately need. This past week, we all had an opportunity to pause and remember Wednesday was the anniversary of one of the worst days in the history of our nation. Most of us, if I were to ask you, where were you that moment when the world stopped, we could remember just like that. Some of us weren't even born yet. And yet you haven't known a day when this didn't hang over our entire collective heads as a people. The last 18 years has changed us. My mom called and asked if I was watching any of the TV specials this week, and I said, I I can't. I still can't watch them without feeling this overwhelming grief and heaviness. It's not just the visual images of that day, because that grief and that overwhelming heaviness is something more. It's something that I realize we've lost since 9-11, something that we've not yet recovered from. What occurred to us still ripples in the subconscious of our souls. We see it on the roads, in our conversations, and everywhere else that we find ourselves. What's occurred? We've become jaded. We've become divided. We've become consumed with being right over anything else. We've taken up this mentality of, of a lack. There's not enough. And so we spend our time running and racing, and now we have an entire nation that is just like a crowd of sheep wandering with no shepherd. It's true outside the church. It's true inside the church. Can can I just let you know that the answer, the answer isn't in Washington, D.C., or in Frankfurt, or at City Hall. The answer is in whether the disciples of Jesus who are living today will choose to take time in the boat for our healing, for our wholeness, and then choose to get back out and love and serve just like he did. Let me say that again. The answer isn't in D.C. or Frankfurt or any other place where legislation occurs. It comes from a different group of people who are so taken up by the story of Jesus that we love and we serve just like him. In the 1960s, there was a priest who looked at our world in chaos and he paraphrased paraphrased the Gospel of John this way. The world will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. Not by our organizational abilities, <laughs> our political maneuvering, or even our stances on certain issues. The world will know we are little Jesuses by our love, by our living out of this gut compassion that takes over, that invites us to serve those around us. The question for us this morning as we prepare to leave this place Does the world see that in you and me? I would love nothing more than in the years to come, in the week to come, that someone doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, you go to Southern Hills? You guys are just like Jesus. 
Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving God, we thank you for this day and for this story and for this invitation that it invites us into. Lord, I pray that as we have explored this passage and this time together, as we've been encouraged by song and music and prayer and quiet, that you will invite us today to go and to be like you. Thank you, Lord, for your love. We honor you, we thank you, and we bless your holy and good name. Amen.